We're in a series in the book of Daniel, and we've been looking at the tale of two kingdoms, looking at the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. As we come to Daniel chapter 8, fair warning, today's going to look a little bit like a history lesson. Come on, somebody over there. Today's going to look a little bit like a history lesson. Now, for me, when I was a younger man, when I was in high, I hated history. Anyone else? Anyone with me? Like I had a saying and it was his snorry, not his story. Because <laughs> it was just boring. Like my, my history teachers, my high school history teachers in particular, I'm not going to mention their name because they might hear and then that's a whole other level of stuff we don't want to deal with. <laughs> Let's just say they didn't do much to endear me towards the story of the past, right? The only thing I remember, I was thinking about this during the week, there's one thing I remember, particularly from my year eight history class, was we used to play a game called Fist Face. Has anyone ever played that before? Which is where what you'd do is you'd, you'd make a fist when your friend was looking this direction. You put your fist there and then you'd call their name. And the hope was they'd turn and then like bump their face against your fist. It was a fun game. We played it all the time. It's sort of a bit like when your mates used to walk and you'd clip their ankle, hope they'd be, and then fall over. Come on, someone. Surely I'm not the only one who played this game. <laughs> anyway, we played this game called Fist Face, and it got to the point where it was a bit ridiculous. Like, literally every moment as you turned, you never just turned your face. It always went like this. <laughs> because if you turned, you've got to do it. So we did this thing. We're sitting in history. My friend Ben, my friend Paul was in the middle, and I was on one side, and Ben's like, hey, Paul. And he's like, uh-huh. And he goes, hey, Paul. Uh, hey, Paul. And he just kept going, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then I just put my foot, hey, Paul. He goes, yep, bang, and just turned right into it, which caused Ben to laugh so hard that the gas that was inside of him was expelled with great force inside of him, outside of him, uh, which caused me to laugh so hard that my presence inside the classroom was expelled to outside the classroom <laughs> for an extended period of time. Uh, and that's what I remember about history. And then I had the privilege as an older person, not that much older, but university, sitting under the teaching of a guy called Dr. Jeff Sundstrom, who I've mentioned a few times in this series, Old Testament lecturer, the guy who introduced me to Uncle Neb. We've talked about Uncle Neb, Uncle Nebuchadnezzar. And he just opened my eyes to history in a way that I had never seen before. And the, re the way he did that, and you've probably heard this before, but the way he did that was he kept saying history is not a boring thing from the past. History is his story. It's God's story. It's God's story of how he has redeemed a broken humanity. He's saying history, all of it, everything is about Jesus. Everything that has happened, every major dynasty rising up and falling down and the next one rising up and falling down, all of it is about Jesus. All of it points to the moment in time when God would send his Messiah into human history to redeem human history from the curse. And all that is coming is now about the pre preparation and refining of the bride for the time when he will come again in glory and power and honour. And I'm preaching already. That's what history is all about. And my eyes in that moment went, Poof. I was like, oh my goodness. I've been sitting there completely ignorant to the glory of God through the stories of the past. And so as we come to Daniel 8 and we have a little bit of a history lesson this morning, my prayer is that each and every one of us would not just see names and facts and fun stories, but you would see the sovereignty of God, 
the surety of Scripture and the certainty of our Saviour. And if you're a note taker, that is the title of the message this morning, the sovereignty of God, the surety of Scripture and the certainty of Saviour as revealed by Daniel chapter 8. So without further ado, let's go to the word. Daniel 8 verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Context. So we are now two years on from last week in chapter 7, right? Daniel is 70 years old. He has been in Babylon for 55 years. He's been castrated. He's been living as a slave under the lordship of a king who is not his king. And yet he served faithfully. Two years ago, God gave him this powerful vision about the things that are to come in the future. He appears again to bring Daniel another vision again about the future of what is to come. And it's a vision that is, uh, it's one of those visions that's so powerful that sometimes, have you ever had a dream where you're like, man, that felt so real. And you wake up and you're almost physically exhausted from the experience because you've been there. Anyone who's seen our Easter promo, I had the chance to sort of share a bit of my testimony in promoting that. And part of that is a dream so similar to that where I was just like, you know, I went to bed, I was sleeping, but it was just this vivid experience of God just coming and speaking to me in a dream. And this is what Daniel is seeing here. Second thing you need to understand is the he- this language has changed from Aramaic to Hebrew. Chapter 1 was Hebrew. Chapter 2 through 7 was Aramaic. We're back into Hebrew. Is that just because Daniel felt like a change? The answer is no. It's not that Daniel's like, "Mm, I'm getting a bit bored of Aramaic. I might just switch it up, you know, get it a bit snazzier again. No, no, no. When, When stuff is written in Aramaic, it means it is a prophetic word to the world. When stuff is written in Hebrew, it means it's a prophetic word to the worshipers. And so the last few chapters has been a warning to the world. It's been saying, this is what you need to be aware of. This is the story that you need to know that God is sovereign over human history. Now he's diving in and this is a a message to the worshippers. It's a message to the Jews. It's a message to the church. It's a message to the saints in times long past where we are right now, in the future. This is a powerful word to the worshippers of God, and so he writes it in Hebrew that we would take note, that we would actually go, all right, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. So that's our context. Let's get into it. Verse two. In my and what we're going to do here, sorry, just a little context again, as we did last week, because it's a vision and an interpretation. What we'll do is we'll com- we'll combine the vision and the interpretation into se- into certain parts. So we'll do a couple of verses and we'll jump to a few more, then we'll come back. You good? Happy days. Let's get into it. Verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the, provident, in the province of Alam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, the north, and the south, and no animal could stand against it and no one could rescue from its power it did as it pleased and became great jump on over to verse 15 
While I was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. So not a man, but looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. That's the angel Gabriel. <laughs> oh, there's only two angels named in scripture, Michael and Angel, uh, Michael and Gabriel. And he, Daniel's meeting Gabriel. <sighs> that blows my mind. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. We'll come back to that. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king's of media and Persia. So, verse 2 through 4, 15 through 20 is a picture of Persia. We've talked about this, what happened in uh, last week as well. We see Daniel standing in the citadel of Susa. Susa is the capital of Persia. Susa is the place where Esther became queen. For those of you who know your Bible, Susa is the place where Nehemiah was residing and where the proclamation was given to go and rebuild the walls, where Ezra was, go and rebuild the temple, right? That's where Susa is. And Daniel finds himself in this vision state, this dream state, and he's literally standing in Susa. It's real as anything. He, he can picture everything around him. And, he's, and he finds himself and he's looking at a ram. And a ram is interesting because the ram has two horns, which you might expect, but one starts big and the other one starts small, but then the one that was small grows and becomes bigger. And then the interpretation is that this is the kings of Media and Persia. What did we learn last week? What have we learned over the last few weeks? Is that this is a prophetic word saying that Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel's in Babylon right now. He's still got 12 years before this comes to pass. Daniel's under the, uh, in the kingdom and Belshazzar has been named co-regent. Nabonidus, the king, is off around doing his thing. Nabonidus knows who Daniel is. Belshazzar doesn't give two hoots who Daniel is. And Daniel gets this, this vision saying, something's coming. There's a nation that I'm rising up. There's a nation that is growing in power and it is going to come. And the inference is that it's going to come against Babylon, destroy Babylon, and it's going to conquer the whole world. And the reason there's a, a horn that starts big is because the Medes were the power of the day. Persia was only small, but Cyrus the Great, Mary, uh, sorry, Cyrus the Great, who had a Median mother and a Persian father, becomes king, and through his reign, Persia becomes the strongest side of that relationship, if that makes sense. This is historically exactly what happened, and Daniel's prophesying it well ahead of time. Sometimes we just lose sight of that. We read this and go, oh yeah, that happened. Yes, that happened. This is unbelievable. And with such incredible detail. And this is what the prophetic word that God's bringing is. He's saying there's going to be this nation. And guess what? Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, historically speaking, did not go east. They went north, west, and south. What was prophesied? They're going to go north, west, and south. And the other thing, just to quickly wrap your heads around, when you say ram, remember these images aren't just random images. They're not that the people of the day reading this weren't like, oh, gee, what's the ram? 
This, I said this last week, this is like a boxing kangaroo going against the Kiwi at the MCG. You kind of go, people know the boxing kangaroo is Australia. They know the Kiwis are the New Zealanders. Like when you see animals, it's like, like I had the privilege of watching Port Adelaide defeat Essendon by 60 points. Yesterday. But if I said to you, I said to you, the power defeated the bombers, you know, in a thousand years time, someone might look at that and go, oh, that's a bit cryptic. Power? What's the power? I wonder what the power could be. And the bombers, well, that must speak of some great nation of war. Like, no, they, we know that the power speaks to Port Adelaide, the bombers speak to Essendon. The same way the ram speaks to Persia. Like, Persian kings used to go to war and they'd be wearing a ram's head on their head. So there's this, straight away the readers know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Persia, that's who they are. And they were powerful and they were dominant. But here's the question that I've been asking all week, and the question you should be asking is, what's the deal with Persia? Why does God care so much about Persia? This is now the fourth time God's spoken specifically about Persia being raised up. Why? And why in Hebrew? Why not Aramaic? Why does God want the Hebrew, the worshippers of God, to know that he's raising up a nation? And the reason is, is because he's raising that nation up for a purpose. And the reason he's raising up that nation for a purpose is because God is always Lord over history. God is in control of those who are in control. He wants us to be aware that while he's given humanity freedom, while there is this tale of two kingdoms, there is a battle, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And while the kingdom of darkness from the time of the garden in Eden has polluted and distorted and twisted truth and perverted humanity and humanity in our stupidity is bought into the lie and we've done dumb stuff after dumb stuff and hurtful stuff after hurtful stuff. None of that is outside of the power of God. None of that is outside of God's wisdom. None of that is outside of God's control. He is Lord over all. History is His story. And the reason this story is so magnificent, the reason Persia is so important is because God is preparing the way for His Messiah. Someone said to me, shouldn't we take a break from Daniel over Easter? And they're like, you're just going to just trundle on through? I was like, trundle on through? (laughs) Don't you understand? Like these are the most, these are powerful, these are perfect Easter messages. Today is Palm Sunday, the day where the people welcomed this Messiah into the city, into Jerusalem by laying palm branches. This is God saying, hey, look at me laying palm branches on the scale of history for my Messiah to come from heaven to earth. I am preparing the way and the way I'm going to prepare is through Persia because what Persia is going to do is they are going to rebuild the temple of God. Babylon destroyed the temple. Persia comes along and in their wisdom, God's wisdom influencing them, they're like, let's rebuild the temple. So they send them, the temple is restored. The walls of Jerusalem are restored, which means worship is restored, which means sacrificial system is restored, which means that the world is now ready for a Messiah to come and become the once for all sacrifice for all humanity. Without Persia, the temple's never restored. The Messiah can't come. This is the palm branches of history. We go about doing our thing and we have our free will and we make our choices and we cause so much pain and destruction, but God is in charge 
of who's in charge. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over all. And he wants us to know that we are not without witness, friends. Because by Daniel telling us this a hundred, you know, start off with 12 years before and then speaking to 150 years in the future, we are not without witness. Everything he says comes to pass. There was a ram with two horns. It was Media and Persia. They did overthrow Babylon. They did conquer the entire known world. They were mighty and powerful and strong and we should be going, not just going, right, let's just whip through my reading this morning so I can get on with other things that I've got to do today. God is in charge of those who are in charge. Verse 5. As I was walking, thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-sided ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it with great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but watch this, at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. This, this is ridiculous. This is going to blow your mind. Verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Friends, there was a man named Alexander the Great. Those of you who know your history, Alexander the Great at the age of 20 came to power. His parents were either murdered or died. We're not entirely sure. But he came to power. And in the space of 12 years, he conquered the entire known world. 12 years. It took us two and a half years to pass a constitution. <laughs> 12 years. He Speed. And the Bible says that this great king came from the West as if he didn't even touch the ground. Such speed. And not only was it the speed at which he conquered, it was the speed at which in military that he actually fought. Like, Alexander the Great's army was 10 times smaller than the Persian army. When you see a goat next to a ram, who do you think is going to win? The answer is a ram. Some of you are like, jeepers, let me just think about... I've got to go back to the animal dictionary. I'm not quite sure which one's bigger. A ram is so much bigger than a goat. You would never expect a goat to defeat a ram. You just wouldn't. Ram is so much bigger. Persia was so much bigger and so much more powerful. But the ram, Greece, came with such ferocity and such speed. And that's the same way they fought. They fought with ferocity and speed and intellect. Like Alexander the Great, probably the greatest military commander in all of human history. And the Bible, the, the, not the Bible, the history books tell us that one battle in particular saw Persia versus Alexander. Persia lost 20,000 soldiers. Greece lost 100 and when he says here that the, the ram could not stand against it, you're like, dang straight. <laughs> he just came with ferocity and power and he overthrew Persia, just completely obliterated Persia. And the legends tell us that 
uh, at the age of 32, when he's lying on his bed weeping because he can't, he had no more nations to conquer. It then goes on and says that as he was dying, either from malaria or maybe poison, again, they're not entirely sure. But they say, where should the kingdom go? And he said, give it to the strong. And so what happened with Alexander after he died, he left no heirs. So what did he do? He gave his kingdom to four generals, which was divided into four Greek nations. Hang on, what did Daniel tell us was going to happen? Oh, that's right. The goat will be broken off at the height of its power, 32, conquering the whole known world. That's the height of one's power. And it's going to be turned into four kingdoms. What? Are you kidding me? This is God revealing, revealing the future to a man writing to the worshippers. Why? Because he wants us to know something about Greece. And he wants us to know something about the purpose of Greece. I learned something this week that literally blew my mind. The, the, can you, are you up for a bit more history? Is that all right? Do you know the ancient historian, a guy called Josephus? Everyone say Josephus. He wrote, a, he wrote a record called the Jewish Antiquities, so the history of the Jews. And in he, the Antiquities, he tells a story about Alexander the Great. And he tells the story about the high priest at the time, which is, his name was Jadus. Everyone say Jadus. And Alexander the Great sent, I think it's called an envoy, is that right, Simon? An, an envoy to uh, Jerusalem saying, you need to honour me as king. And, and and the king, Jadis, the high priest, was like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. I'm loyal to Darius of Persia because Persia's so much bigger and so much stronger, he thought. So he's like, I'm not doing that. And that ticked Alexander off. So Alexander rallies his forces and he comes against Jerusalem. And as he comes against Jerusalem, he's on his way just to destroy Jerusalem. And on the way, Jadis has a dream from God. And the dream from God is you need to put on a purple robe you need to dress the people in white. You need to come outside the walls and wait for Alexander. You didn't get it. Alexander's the most furious, incredible military leader who conquered everyone and left no one in his wake, destroyed everyone and everything. And God tells in a dream the high priest to go, just go and stand and wait for him and not behind your walls. Just chill out out there. See what happens. Jadis would have, the people would have been like, Jadis, man, you're a nut. Like, what are you doing? We're just lambs to the slaughter here. But they obey God. They obey God. And so they did exactly what God said in this dream. They waited for him. Jadis in his purple robe, everyone in white. Alexander's coming with fury on his horse and he sees this. He sees a purple thing. And the, the his, Josephus, sorry, I'm getting my Bible and Josephus mixed up. Josephus, records that on the way as Alexander catches sight of this, he breaks down. He gets right up to Jadis. He hops off of his horse. He falls on his face weeping. And he says, three years ago, I had a dream. I had a vision. And that vision was a man in purple with a people in white telling me it's time to raise an army against Persia. And he goes, you are that man. Same face, same voice. And I've come to bring destruction on you. And now he's weeping at the high priest's feet. God is in control of who's in control. This is his story. 
And so Alexander comes. He ends up going with Jadus to the temple. They worship Yahweh. They worship the Most High God with sacrifice. Alexander then fueled by this destiny, this divine destiny that I'm supposed to now go and conquer Persia because this God is legit. And he's like, I'm going to go and conquer. So he goes with renewed confidence. He goes and conquers Persia and he promised that the Jews would have religious freedom, that the temple would not be restored, that they could continue their worship. Friends, why is this important? It's because it means that what Persia established or re-established with worship was allowed under Alexander. The temple doors were open. The second thing why this is important is because Alexander Hellenized the world. What does that mean? He meant... Everyone spoke Greek. Friends, what language is the Bible written in the New Testament? Greek. In Genesis 11, God scattered the languages of the earth because man was trying to build its own kingdom for its own glory from earth to heaven. In Daniel 8, God prophesies that a man's going to come along and unite the language of the world because he is about to bring his kingdom from heaven to earth. This is preparing the way for the proclamation of the Messiah. This is the palm branches on the floor of history, somebody. It's not haphazard accident. And God tells Daniel to write it down so we would know that he is Lord of history, that he is the King of Kings, that he is the author of all things. And that Jesus is the centre of everything. That this book, it's all about Jesus. It is a unified story that points to Christ. History is a unified story that points to Christ. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So there we have Greece, this divine destiny. They allow not just worship to happen, but the word to be proclaimed. The word to be proclaimed throughout the earth with one common language. I don't even have time to talk about Rome and Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. The Roman roads, the fact that they just enable people to go everywhere. The fact that there's persecution of the church, which means, hey, go out and tell people about Jesus. And in the space of 300 years, it's the main religion in the world. Like, it's extraordinary what God is doing in human history. But we must move on. So, Daniel 8, verse 9. Out of one of them, so out of one of the four kingdoms of Greece, came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land is Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, another translation, the abomination that leads to desolation, famous passage. The surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evening and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. Let's jump over to verse 23. 
In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, and but, uh, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of the princes. Who's that? Jesus. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. This is where it gets interesting. Can I take a moment to talk to you about three characters, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist, and the Christ. What is Daniel prophesying here? It's really interesting. 150 years after Alexander the Great, a man rose up, and he was small in stature. He was insignificant from one of the four kingdoms of Greece. His name was Antiochus. And Antiochus came up, and he became, he was a very, like he was a smart dude. He was a political leader. He was wise. He was able to manipulate people and he rose to authority and he was a brute. He was a, a sadistic brute. And as he rose to power and he claimed power, he came against Jerusalem. And it's in 170 BC, Antiochus initiated a persecution against the Jews. In 167 BC, Antiochus, with such fury, well, actually, it appeared as if it wasn't fury, he came to Jerusalem under the guise of peace when they felt secure. And as he came to them under the guise of peace, once they allowed him in, he then he went mad. He called himself Epiphanes, which means like royal one. The Jews called him Epimenes, which means madman. And he killed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews. And what he did was he went into the temple and he desecrated the temple. He took the Torah, the Word of God, and he said, you cannot speak of it. He burnt it. He literally threw it on the ground and had people step on it. He then sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. For those of you who know anything about your Jewish culture, a pig is a complete uh, defilement, unclean. To even touch a pig made you unclean. To sacrifice a pig on God's altar is a horrific sin. And then he took a, took a statue of Zeus, an idol of his Greek god Zeus, and he put it in the Holy of Holies. An abomination that led to desolation. And for three years, the worship of the temple was stopped. Three years, no worship. It's really interesting if you read the, uh, the Bible finishes Old Testament about 400 years before Christ. In that time, you can call it, they call it the silent period, but there are history books. There's one and two Maccabees, which is not the Bible, but it is good history. And one or two Maccabees tell the story of this time and they tell the story about how eventually the Maccabees, this group of Jews, became so enraged at what was going on and with such zeal for the 
the kingdom of God, such zeal for who God is and what he should do. When they saw this abomination that led to desolation in 164 BC, they revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes and they threw him out of Jerusalem. And the temple was cleansed and reconsecrated and worship was reintroduced. They celebrate that today. It's called Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus celebrated the Festival of Dedication, the Festival of Lights. What is this saying? When we come to these numbers, 2,300 evenings and mornings. I've ever read that and been like, what the heck's that all about? Well, here we come back to our glorious open-handed issues of end times theology. And it is open and you can think about it. Some people have said 2,300 is a, little, a literal 2,300 days, which equates to the time the persecution of the Jews started to the time of the Maccabean revolt. And if you look at your history, it's almost bang on 2,300 days. Others have said it speaks to the, because it says evening and mornings and because it's in the context of sacrifice, that it's talking about the sacrifices, morning, uh, evening and morning. And therefore, you need to halve that number, 1,150, which again, from the time of that great persecution, 167 to 164, is almost bang on 1,150 days. Others have argued that the 2,300 days was from the time of Daniel, and it's actually years. So in like the late 1800s, there was this big group of people like, Jesus is coming back. They did their maths. Guess what? It didn't come back. What's the lesson? Don't get so caught up in the numbers and the detail that you forget the message. The message is that Jesus is coming back to put an end to evil and all the demonic. And so we can link it to Antiochus and say it's almost bang on. But up until now, Daniel's been 100% bang on. And so the suggestion that I would suggest to you is this is actually a prophetic word about something we haven't seen yet. Why do I think that? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus says something fascinating. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. So firstly, Jesus says Daniel wrote it. Secondly, he says the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel. When you see, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying what Daniel said, this number, the abomination of desolation. Jesus is speaking about it as a future reality. And he's talking about a real temple. Now the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, which means that there's got to be a a third temple. There has to be another temple. This is talking about future end times prophecy. What's Jesus saying? He's saying Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. A type is someone who was real, legitimate. They actually did stuff, but it speaks of something else, something greater, something coming in the future. Like Daniel is a type of Jesus. It's supposed to recognise this is a real guy, but it shows us something. It's a deeper reality. It shows us what else is coming. 
Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. Jesus is saying, you know about Antiochus. You know what he did. You know the horrible, horrendous things that happened to the Jewish people. Let me tell you, saints, it's going to come again at the very end of time. And the, the, the prophet said, seal it up. So when we look at 2300, stop freaking out about it because it was sealed up. How are we supposed to know? If Gabriel didn't, like Daniel didn't even know. It's sealed up, so stop stressing about that, but know that it's speaking of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's coming on high to destroy all evil. Now, let me show you something. We see the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world. We talked about this last week. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 2 Thessalonians. They talk about the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the world today. They say that, yes, there was the spirit of Babylon from the garden and it's at work. Antiochus is a type. It's coming again. There will be a real person, the Antichrist. But in the meantime, church, take your stand against the devil's schemes because he is a deceiver and he is a wretch and he is trying to destroy the people of God and he has his Antichrist. And he's got the spirit that leads the Antichrist at work in the world. There's been Hitler. There's been Stalin. There's been, insert the name that you want to insert. These people have been at work in our world under the authority of that same spirit. And the church is supposed to be encouraged. The people of God are supposed to take hope. Why? Because God is in control of those who are in control. Because God has already spoken it. And because all this other stuff has come to pass, we know that what He promised for the future will also come to pass. And when we read about Antiochus and we read about the Antichrist, we see that Jesus is the one with true authority. Band, you can come up. We see that this spirit that has been at work in the world will not overcome Christ. I'm going to build my church on the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will not prevail against the people of God. Watch this from Scripture. Antiochus and the Antichrist are symbolized by horns that were little or small coming from the earth and rising up to achieve great power. Jesus Christ came in glory from heaven and humbled himself becoming little on the earth. What God creates, Satan counterfeits. The Antichrist is a satanic counterfeit of God's true King in heaven. The spirit of the Antichrist is a satanic counterfeit of God's true King in heaven. God didn't want Israel to have a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites are like, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. Why? Because everyone else had a king. We wanna just be like everybody else and says, you don't want that. I'm your king. If you have that, you're, he's gonna do this to you. He's gonna take your wives. He's gonna take your children. He's gonna take your money. He's gonna take your property. You don't want an earthly king. You're not supposed to be like everyone else in this world. And they go, no, we want it. We want it. We want it. And then we see the corruption of kings all throughout the world as they give themselves over to that spirit of the demonic. However, a true king is coming from heaven who will not fall down that path, but will reign with righteousness and truth and grace and justice and mercy. And he's coming. Antiochus was a stern-faced king. The Antichrist will have an imposing look, but Jesus was silent before his accusers. Antiochus was the master of intrigue and the brilliance of the Antichrist is suggested by the eyes on the horn, the ability to offer uh, correct solutions to world's problems. They'll have this sort of interesting, what the world will call wisdom, but Jesus says that he's gonna frustrate the wisdom of the wise. Come on, someone. 
This is, the, this is our King. Antiochus had great power. The Antichrist will have greater power, but it's not his own power. That power, it tells us, has come from the demonic. Jesus Christ is all powerful and His power is by the Holy Spirit of God, which descended upon Him like a dove at His baptism. Antiochus destroyed thousands. The Antichrist will destroy more. Jesus is the Saviour of the world, friends. Antiochus prospered for a short while. The Antichrist will prosper for a brief time. Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Antiochus persecuted the saints. The Antichrist will oppress believers. Jesus sets us free. Whom the Son sets free, they are free indeed. Come on, somebody. Antichrist was a deceiver. The Antichrist will be a master deceiver, 2 Thessalonians. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. The Antichrist spirit is trying to defile this. The Antichrist spirit is trying to tell you that this is not truth. It's trying to tell you that truth is relative. Believe whatever you want to believe. Do whatever you want to do. The Antichrist spirit is trying to distort truth because it is true. If you are a liar, if you are someone who is in trouble with the law because you know you've done wrong in the court of law, you do not want to be asked questions because questions reveal truth. If you stand aloft as true, if you know that you are right, then you say, bring it on. Question me, what does Jesus say? Seek, ask, knock. Why? Because He's not afraid. Because He is the truth. He is the truth. And it's high time the church stopped trying to deconstruct the Word, stop trying to twist it and turn it into whatever we want it to be, stop going after teachers to please our itching ears. It's high time the church sat under the authority of the Word of God not over the authority of the Word of God, started to believe truth, buy into truth, even when it's not popular. Come on, that's who we're called to be. Antichrist was proud. He was called Epiphanes. And, uh, sorry, Antiochus was proud. They called himself Epiphanes. The Antichrist will be one of the most arrogant individuals the world has ever known. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus was humble even to the point of obedience to death on a cross. The Antichrist spirit exalts itself from earth seeking heaven. The Spirit of God humbles Himself from heaven to earth. That's our King. That's our King. Our King came into Jerusalem on a donkey as prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. He came in on a donkey while King Herod, another Antichrist type, was coming in in royal chariots on the other side of Jerusalem, friends. Our Christ comes in humility. Antiochus blasphemed God. The Antichrist will blaspheme God. Jesus glorifies the Father, friends. Final one, you can stand to your feet. We're gonna sing. Antiochus was killed by God, not through human hands, a bowel disease. Likewise, the Antichrist will be killed, but not by human hands. Guess who's gonna bring him to an end? 2 Thessalonians 2 verse eight. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What am I saying, friends? Why, what's the take home? Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is a well-reasoned belief in God founded on the evidence of God's revealed truth through all of human history. 
The reason you can trust that Jesus is coming back is because everything that happened before has come to pass exactly as He said. Jesus is King. Jesus is coming back. The Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Friends, on that final day, when He comes on the clouds in glory, we're going to celebrate a festival called the Festival of the Light. We're going to worship Him and glorify Him and bring Him honour and glory. Because He is the King of Kings and He is the Lord of Lords for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. And we get to give Him praise. We get to give Him praise. He is our King. He is our King. He is our King. It's time that we lift up a shout of praise to our glorious, eternal King. doesn't matter what's come in the past. He's coming in the future. We can have hope, friends. Let's sing to our great God. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.